Our fishing game does the same thing with their in Idaho with their surveys. They they take um, small areas of the winter range and that's all they look at. All right. They take a sample size of the winter range and that's what they fly and that's what they look at. And then through their models, which are a lot more uh, complicated and comprehensive than mine, they extrapolate what they would expect to see on the rest of the winter range. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Rockcast. Okay, going to be what early January here by the time this episode comes out. Today we uh, it's just me flying solo. Uh, we are going to be talking about winter scouting. Uh, we. Uh, have a member question uh, from that last episode Travis and I did that we didn't get to. And let's see, you're going to talk about rock slide photo contests. People are voting now. Got a short reel I want to share with you. Uh, an update on the Mindful Hunter review that he did on those Zeiss SFLs that I tested. And then we're going to do a read from Hunting Big Mule Deer. And I'm getting excited about that because we're almost to the best part of the book. So anyways, it's Robbie here, uh, shining face as, uh, Travis calls me now, uh, the bearded wonder. I don't know where he's at right now. He's probably out winter scouting, which is what I was going to talk about here today. So, uh, winter scouting, I do do it. And should you do it? Well, as I wrote in my, my book before, I think it's helpful, um, in the sense of getting an idea of what kind of quality is out there in the areas that you're going to be hunting. But because it's so hard to get a late tag where you're actually hunting deer on winter range, it, it's not so helpful in that area. Just because of the winter scouting, you're not typically hunting those same bucks. Now, that can change. You know, maybe you live in a part of the West where these deer don't migrate very far. I know there's a lot of places like that. So obviously winter scouting would be even better. You know, and off the top of my head, I'm thinking of some of the units in Southern Nevada, um, Southern Utah, um, Arizona. And it, there's even places around Idaho that I know some of these deer don't move very far. And so you, you just got to decide why are you doing it? And if it's like, Hey, I'm going to find this buck on the winter range and then I'm going to find him 70 miles away. That's a pretty tough game to play. Although it does happen. It does happen. In fact, Travis, uh, if any of you have followed, uh, the story of Scar, that buck he killed back in 2017, it's in my second book, The Legend of Scar, and it's been in other places too. Uh, Travis to my knowledge, did not find that buck on the winter range, but because it was a pretty famous buck, uh, you know, mid thirties, you know, this buck ranged anywhere. I think when Travis killed him, he was in the two twenties. And I think he had 
been all the way into the 240s, if I remember right. But anyways, uh, Travis killed him 70 miles from the winter range and actually found him in the summer, uh, knew it was the same buck. But that's kind of a unicorn. You know, it doesn't happen a whole lot. I remember in David Long's first book, um, uh, let's see, I can't remember what it's called now, but uh, the the bottom line. um, And uh, hunting public land mule deer, the bottom line. And uh, he had talked about a buck in there that he had found on the winter range and then later on found it in the summer, you know, miles and miles and miles away. Uh, so it does happen. I, I don't want to say it doesn't, but to go out and make it happen on purpose with most migratory mule deer herds, it's it's pretty tough. Um, there was a buck that was killed around here mm, six or seven, eight years ago that uh, had been seen on the winter range, not by the guy that killed it, but... Um, had been seen on the winter range by multiple hunters. I knew one of them really well. That's why I could verify it because I got to see the pictures of it. And then the guy killed it on the summer range, but this was an oddball buck. This buck only moved a couple of miles from the winter range uh, to where he was killed in the summer. And he lived on a big flat plateau that was eroded and very hard to kill deer in there without snow. And uh, this, this guy... Uh, got it done. I don't think he got it done on purpose. Um, he, he, I, 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 I hate saying people got lucky because I, I always feel like, you know, you're kind of diminishing what happened. And if you weren't there, you don't really know what happened, but you know, he definitely got lucky on this buck. Uh, cause I don't think he was hunting him on purpose, but, uh, you know, there, so it does happen. It does happen. But when I'm out doing winter scouting for the most part, I'm doing it to get an idea of the quality of the deer. Um, on the winter range and then what I might be able to experience in the summer if I know where those deer go. So you gotta, you gotta have a good biologist. You gotta know where the deer are coming from on that winter range. And the, the funny thing is the more of these collar studies that come in, uh, the more we're, the, 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 the more we're not able to say, where bucks summer. I just saw one. We always mention Randy Larson. He's on Instagram, wildlife prof. I just saw a post today. I think I shared it on my story that, uh, uh, he, he, he documented two deer that were not behaving as the rest of the herd. They were migrating up in the winter and going the opposite direction of the winter range. You know, so you've always got these anomalies and it's, it's of my humble opinion that God built that into the deer because that's how they survive. Because if you have a catastrophe on a certain winter range, you've always got these oddball deer that are, that were, maybe they were born on that winter range, but they migrate to a completely different one, you know, 50 miles away. You've always got that stuff going on. So I kind of want to preface when I talk winter scouting that the odds of you finding a buck on the winter range in most places and then find him again in the summer is small. Uh, but there's always a chance. So, um, with winter scouting, probably the first thing I want to say about it is the deer at their most vulnerable during the winter. So you gotta stay back. And with today's glass, it's not that hard to stay back and leave them undisturbed. As we talked about on the last episode with Travis, you know, Idaho just put that shed season in, uh, just because so many complaints of deer getting ran around all winter in certain places. Um, and, and even when you're not shed hunting, you can still run deer around if you're not careful. So, so stay back. I do a lot of my winter scouting from roads, um, or short distances from roads. Um, 
I've flown winter range a couple of times. I've even flown it with fish and game um, when they're not counting. Uh, my friend was a um, uh, wolverine biologist and he took me out a few times. And, and if, if you ever get the treat to fly winter range, stay high, take binoculars, stay back. Because uh, you really don't want to run them around, all right? And uh, so, so that's first and foremost. Stay back as far as you can, leave the least least amount of impact that you can. But there's a couple of things I've learned over 20 years of, of winter scouting that have been helpful to me. And to just go out and winter scout and not write anything down, well, you're just having fun that, and that's great. But if, if you want to make it methodical and you want to learn something from it, I highly recommend keeping a journal. And I started doing this back in the early 2000s. And I really don't remember if I picked this up from some of my friends at the fishing game or I just made it up. I, I really don't remember. But um, I came up with the a deer per hour uh, as one of the parameters. Because when, I, when I'm out on winter range, I'm not only trying to see the size of the bucks that are around, but what's the health of the herd? What is the um, the number of deer I'm seeing compared to other years? And you're not going to learn anything until you've done it over, you know, multiple years with your deer population and, you know, different places, buck to doe ratios, high low deer population, you know, all those different things. But you can start to see trends. Uh, and so what I started doing was counting deer per hour. But in order for that to work, you, you kind of need to know your winter range and you need to know where to go where you can have a good test sample. So for this this one place where I've really developed it. I've got about three places I can park and I can see two or three miles of deer country, square miles of deer country. And by noting that in a journal where I'm parked and then starting a timer when I start to glass, and then I just start counting deer and I do classify um, um, does and fawns at least does. Sometimes you can't tell the fawns from the does a long ways apart. So that'll be a sub note in my journal. But I start counting does and fawns and then bucks. Um, and you know, a lot of times you're looking at great distance. So my buck to doe ratio is going to be low because I'm not able to count the small bucks as easily at a long distance, you know, where if you're in a helicopter, uh, doing game surveys, um, they're, you're, you're better able to, to classify bucks. So my, my buck to doe ratio is always a little bit low because I'm only seeing the better bucks typically at distance. Um, and again, this is, this is very unscientific, right? This is just kind of more for fun, but I can tell you something. I'm going to share it with you in a minute that over time you can see trends and, um, um, maybe not, uh, what do they call that in the scientific community? Um, maybe not statistically significant or statistically accurate. Maybe that's what I'm looking for, but you can still see trends. So I'll, I'll classify what I see, deer per hour, does and fawns if possible, and bucks. Now the does and fawns thing, because sometimes you can't tell the difference, on some scouting trips, I just throw that out and I just count antlerless deer, okay? And then bucks. And then I, I'll start my timer and I'll count for, it's not necessarily a predetermined amount of time. It's however much time it takes me to glass that particular spot. Some places, 20 minutes, some places an hour. Okay. But I'm always recording how much time it's taken me to do it. Cause that's going to help me get my deer per hour and my bucks per hour. 
Okay. And then in this one particular place, I have about three places that I park. And then I write all that down, uh, deer per hour, does and fawns if I'm classifying, or at least just deer, excuse me, antlerless, and then bucks. And then I run the math. Okay. And what I'm trying to come up with at least want to get bucks per hour that I can see. And um, and then deer per hour. Okay. And again, if I can break it down into does and fawns, all, all the better. And so I was just doing this, um, what's today? Today's Friday. It was last Saturday. Um, I just went to that place and um, I had good conditions. And that's the other thing. You got to note your conditions. You, you can't really do a comparison between dry ground, bare ground counts, and it just snowed last night counts. All right. I only count after it snows. All right. I need, I need that snow to be a day, no more than two days old. It still needs to be on the top of the sagebrush for me to be able to get a good accurate count. Because as soon as it starts coming off the top, top of the sagebrush, I don't care how good of a glasser you are, your deer sightings go way down. You just can't see as many. But if I can get out there on a nice, uh, fresh, crisp morning, no fog, and I've still got snow, I know I'm seeing most of the deer or more of them, put it that way. And uh, so your conditions matter. And I always note the conditions. In fact, if I don't have good conditions, a lot of times I don't even do the count. I just, I'm just looking for deer, hoping to maybe see a good buck, you know, have maybe, maybe get a crack at a coyote, stuff like that. But where I went last Saturday, um, and I had gone about 10 days before that, and both those times I had snow, fresh snow the day before. And the time before that, the deer were just starting to get to the winter range. I, I just happened to know when they arrive and my count was low. I was about 50 deer an hour. And I knew just because of the timing of the mild fall, that I, I just wasn't seeing all the deer. And I went ahead and noted that in my journal. But when I went last Saturday, uh, which is, you know, late December, the deer are down there by then. And, um, I was up to over 80 deer an hour and I felt like I was getting a really good count. You know, I was able to see well, uh, not a lot of wind. I don't care how good your glass is. If you have a lot of wind, you just get a lot of vibration and it messes up your long distance glassing. You just don't get to see as much. So had all those good conditions and I was over 80 deer an hour and, um, my, my buck count doubled too. I think I, I don't have it right in front of me. Let's just say the first time I was seeing five bucks an hour, second time I was seeing 10, 12 bucks an hour. And then I know which bucks are mature. Now that's just my, my word. Okay. Everybody's got a different, uh, definition for a mature buck. You know, a biologist will call a mature buck of breeding age. Well, heck that can be a, be a two pointer or a, or a two and a half year old. Um, but when I talk to hunters, mature bucks for them, you know, we're talking 170 bucks and up. So to me, a mature buck is probably a 150 buck four point, you know, full body. Um, something I know is an up and coming, buck, I'll, I'll put it down as mature. So that's almost a meaningless number to anyone else. That's just something for my own personal uh, information. Because if I've been going to these different winter ranges all the years, and I know that I, you know, I typically see four mature bucks an hour when I'm counting that way. And now I'm only seeing one. Well, I know there's been a shift as long as the conditions were the same. Okay. So, um, so this, after this last trip, I felt like I got a good count. I went back and looked in my journal from years when we had peak deer populations. And I have counted uh, um, close to uh, 200 deer an hour 
on that same winter range when deer were at their peak, like in 2006, 2007, right around in there, you could count up to 200 deer an hour on those, on those winter range and, you know, 20, 25 bucks an hour. Okay. So, you know, I'm, I'm less than half of that now, which is expected after what we've gone through with, you know, two really killer winters in the last six years. Um, um, so not surprising, but the good news is I'm still seeing good bucks. I'm going to share one here in a minute about a, um, a reel that I shot for uh, an optics comparison. So, um, that's that to me, the value in it is having that data and then having multiple years to compare it to. Okay. And, uh, we'll talk about this later in the podcast, but you know, I, I get accused of being an optimist and I am because I've done this long enough be, to have seen this happen before. This isn't the only time I've counted 80 deer an hour on the winter range when they're all down there before, after 17, that happened as well. And, um, um, you know, they, these deer are, are very cyclical. Now I think they're at a, at a quite the low right now, but I've seen that happen before. And then, and then they come back. So anyways, um, start keeping a journal if you're doing that. Um, uh, and, and over time you'll start to be able to paint a picture of it. I don't think this works on every winter range. You know, you got to have good vantage points. Um, all of it I do from the truck, all of it, because, you know, when you're out walking around, well, two things are happening. You're probably bumping deer and, um, you're just, you're just not seeing, as many deer typically as just getting back on a vantage point and looking over, you know, several square miles of it. So there's obviously winter range where that's not going to work, but our fishing game does the same thing with their, in Idaho, with their surveys. They, they take, um, small areas of the winter range and that's all they look at. All right. They take a sample size of the winter range and that's what they fly and that's what they look at. And then through their models, which are a lot more uh, complicated and comprehensive than mine, they extrapolate what they would expect to see on the rest of the winter range. And you know, I've talked to these, these biologists and, and everything, and they're, they're pretty trustworthy models. They, they really are. And, and they've been tested again and again over the years. These are all aer aerial sightability models. Um, we're not doing it from the air the way I'm talking about. You're just doing it from the pickup off of high point, but you can still get a feel for the trends. And by the way, all these trends that I've ever noted in my journal line up with typically what the fishing game trends, um, which is, which is surprising to some of the haters that I meet out there because they automatically say that, oh, everything fishing game says is a lie. You know, they, they jack up their counts. They just want to sell licenses, da, 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 da. Well, there's always a whistleblower. If that was happening on a wide scale, someone would speak up eventually. All right. People don't work for the, for the fishing game forever. You know, and if they were, they were saying, Hey, those guys are jacking up their counts. It would get out there. And, and I don't remember it ever getting out there. I don't remember ever hearing a, a fishing game count disputed other than just at the coffee shop. And so anyways, um, that's some of the data that you, that you can gather with winter scouting. Hopefully that's helpful to you. And plus it's just a lot of fun. And, um, I try to, and by the way, I try to do all this stuff, especially when I'm counting bucks before January 15th, because after that you start to lose bucks to, uh, to, to, to sheds, they start shedding their antlers. So, um, it, it gets pretty, pretty fun for me about a week before Christmas till the middle of January. Cause that's when I'm looking the most. And, um, okay, let's see. And then when Travis and I did that episode here a few weeks back and we took the member questions from Instagram, uh, Travis just put that post up like an hour before the episode 
And so we didn't really have time to go through very many of them. He just kind of hit the top ones. But when we got done, we went back through them to see if there was any good ones we missed. And there was one in there, okay, that that, that I really wanted to address. It was uh, part of it was addressed to me. So I wanted to answer uh, uh, this gentleman directly. His name is Garrison underscore Kinzel. Yep, that's you, Garrison. You didn't know we were going to mention you on there, but we thought that was a good question. And I want to go ahead and read it here. Let me pull it up. Let's see. Okay. His question was in two parts. Here's the first part. Robbie is my favorite and maybe only optimist when it comes to the state of big mule deer in the West. I'm not trying to make a pessimist out of him, but it doesn't seem like a new age mule deer hunter like me has much to look forward to relative to the heyday stories of the people we're learning from. Do you guys think we're in a perpetual downswing where average buck quality in the West is going to continue to drop, or is it really as cyclical as Robbie likes to hope? Well, um, I'll, I'll take that title as, as an optimist, and let me tell you why I'm an optimist. Um, and, I, and, I'll be the, and you've heard me say it before. There may even be a little bit of naivety to this. I might be a little naive. I get it. But you got to remember, I started hunting in the 80s and really started paying attention to this stuff then when I was a kind of mid-teens. And I grew up in a family of pretty hardcore mule deer hunters, especially my dad. And then just generations of hunters around here. I mean, Southeast Idaho was the Boone and Crockett Mecca back then. Um, it was just right behind Colorado. And the 80s were good by all standards, if you go back and look at it. Yet when I was in the 80s, all I heard was bitching and moaning about the fishing game and this deer herd is in the toilet and da 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 da. I mean, these were my blood relatives. These were my my mentors. Uh I mean, it I I felt like like you did that. Uh, what am I even doing this for? I mean, this sucks. Yet we look back at the eighties now, all of us would trade to go back to the eighties. Now, I think a lot of it was, is, you know, we didn't have very good gear then. We couldn't see everything that was out there like we can now, but you know, by all standards, you know, mo most places in the eighties were pretty dang good. Um, that all changed in, in 92, 93 with that killer winter. Um, so for me to survive back then, kind of like you're trying to do now, I had to become an optimist. I had, I, I couldn't live in the glory days of the guys that had gone ahead of me. And, and, and this is why I fought so hard against it. They all quit. Most, even including my dad for the most part, he at least quit mentally. They were so mentally defeated. It was like, what's the point? And I wrote about this in my book. If you go read my book that, and, and this really, I really noticed this about 92, 93, because, you know, it was tough then. It really was. We lost a lot of deer in 93. And um, a lot of those guys just up and quit. And if they didn't quit, they might as well have because they just believed there was nothing there. I've talked about this on the podcast too. Um, Ted Chu was a, a biologist for Idaho Fishing Game for years. And, uh, and, and Carl Anderson was, was also, he was out of the Pocatello office. Ted was in the Idaho Falls office. They both told me basically the same thing. Hunters see what they think they're going to see. If they think it sucks, it's going to suck. If they think it's going to be good, they're probably going to eventually see what they're looking for. And so... 
you say you're a new age deer hunter. I'm, I'm, I, you're either young or you're just coming into it. Well, that was me back then. So I could either listen to all the naysayers of how bad it was, who were basically quitting left and right, or I could just work hard and get out there and do the best that I could. And I'm glad I went with the latter. And, and also in your question, you say, are the deer really a cyclical, as I say, well, I'm not basing that on anything but what I've observed. Okay. Now I can read it in the literature. The literature backs me up, but I, I believe the literature because it's what I've observed. And, um, just in, in the years I've been hunting, uh, the, these are the peaks that I've seen, and, and you and this is in the Intermountain West, and you you can find this in the literature if you go look. Ninety two, that was a that was a real peak in deer numbers. Two thousand seven, that was a real peak in deer numbers. Idaho, Colorado, Wyoming, all all this stuff around here, and sixteen was another peak. And and then even the years prior to that, it's not like it just peaks in one year. You know, those are typically the peaks and. At, after each of those years is when we had the winter kill. So that then you can say, okay, that was the peak. But even the the, the years leading up to that were pretty dang good. Um, and then in, 2020, in 22, just a couple of years ago, not, it wasn't a peak. It wasn't. I mean, I was still still struggling, but you know, I was finding 190, even close to 200 inch bucks then. Um, but 22 was, was like the 2005, 2006, right before the peak in seven, I could tell, you know, I'm starting to see bucks everywhere they should be. I'm starting to see older bucks, um, even a few really big bucks. I mean, they, they were getting traction and, uh, but then we just had this really, really, really bad winter that set us back. And so I'm calling 22 a peak, but it wasn't a peak like, like those other ones, but we don't typically have two killer winners in six years either. All right. And, uh, so anyways, that's what I base a lot of that on. It's just simply what I've observed. So to answer your question, do I, do I think that they're going to stay low? No, I don't think they're going to stay low. The only wild card is I can't predict the weather. All right. So yeah, if the weather keeps doing this, yep, it's done. Okay. But I don't think it will. Um, we basically from 92 to 2007, we did not have of any very hard winters in there. 96, 97 was kind of on the edge of it, but still most of the winter ranges did fine. Um, and, uh, you know, so from basically from 92 to 2007, you know, we went, we went 15 years without any really hard winters here in the Intermountain West. Um, and so you, now we're paying the piper, you know, we, we, we've had two and you know, what, six years, uh, 2017, uh, and 2023. And so, so I'm, I'm only, I'm only an optimist because I've lived through it. And this, this is where maybe I'm naive. I'm going to choose to be an optimist and I'm going to choose to be hopeful because I love deer hunting and I've seen it get tough before. And I think it's going to get, get better again. But if it doesn't, okay, I was wrong. I was wrong, but I'm still, I'm still going to keep trying. All right. And this is the other thing about all those guys that quit besides not going hunting. Do you think they donated $1 to the Mule Deer Foundation? You know, they quit buying deer tags. I mean, they just basically checked out. A lot of them went elk hunting, but does that help our deer when everybody just checks out? Some guys will say, yes, I know a lot of guys sitting on the sidelines. They just want everybody to quit. They can't wait for all these baby boomers to die. All right. Um, but when, if we don't have the support through license purchases, you know, and, and all the equipment taxes and everything that, that you hear about, well, that's not a good thing. All right. 
So um, maybe I'm naive, but I'm going to still be an optimist because it served me very well in the past. And it's not the first time the deer have gotten down. And if you're a new age deer hunter, it just may seem doom and gloom, but I've seen them get down before. I, I, I don't think it was ever any worse than it was right after 92, 93. Okay. And we still by night, and I've talked about this before, you go back and listen to the episodes and you know, I'm not just pulling this out of my ear here. Those deer got back on their feet and by 95, 96, I was seeing some really big bucks. Um, so that's my answer to that part of the question. And let's see, he had another, uh, Ginsel had another question here on the second question. I'd love to hear you all's take on the shifting nature of what a man's time is worth in the mule deer world. I think it used to be that your average man would do best pouring all his time into scouting and a handful of easy general tags and hoping for one good buck out of it. Now I'm starting to believe your average man might be better off putting that same amount of time into a side hustle and paying his way into one high-end hunt a year. Can y'all discuss the trade-off? Sure. And um, I'm going to pull up Travis's answer first here. The Onyx Hunt Elite subscription will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you. And that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. Travis says, yeah, I think you might be better off to raise money and spend it on a, a high-end guided hunt or landowner vouchers, but none of those guarantee even an opportunity at a big buck. I do think your odds could increase with some money to spend, but you can't buy a big mule deer. They're the most valuable species on the planet. Sheep and elk tags don't even compete on the high end. And my answer is, is similar. Um, I think the thing that you're not realizing is that unless you're into the really high end hunts, you know, we're talking 30 K that kind of stuff. Um, there's no guarantee on, on, on any of those hunts. I, I know guys that have gone to Mexico two or three times and not gotten a big buck. You know, they're spending, you know, I don't know, I haven't shopped out Mexico hunts. I keep hearing they're 15. So let's just say they're 12. Okay. $36,000 and they don't have a, a 200 inch buck. So I'm going to be re real careful about putting all my eggs in that basket too. Um, I could probably afford a Mexican hunt. 
not three years in a row, but a Mexican hunt. I haven't gone yet because of the same thing. It's like, yeah, the weather sounds nice. Looks like a lot of fun, but I might be better off just spending less money than that and just keep hunting, keep scouting like I have been. And if I get skunked, it's less of a sting. You know what I mean? Um, but I would never discourage anybody from doing it. Heck, I, I, I have a tag account that I save for. I just haven't seen any really great opportunities that I can afford. Um, and, and the other part of your question too, about, you know, it seemed like maybe before you'd be better off to just grind it out on general seasons and stuff like that, but maybe not anymore. Well, this is, this is what I tell you. My last two bucks that I've killed that were over 30 inches wide, one in 2018, one in 2022, both came off of tags you can get every year or every other year. Even now, you can still get them every year or every other year. But uh, that that first 30 incher was uh, that I was talking about was in 2018. Since 2018, I've had three hunts that cost me, one of them cost me nine points. The other one cost me 16. And then another one cost me eight. I never punched a tag on any of those. And I hunted them hard, hard. Um, Just as hard as I hunt the other ones. And I didn't even pull the trigger on any of them. Saw good bucks. There was more bucks around. Um... On one of those hunts, I even saw a better buck than the 30 inchers that I killed, but I never got him because of all the other things that go into deer hunting. They just are smart and they hide. So, so, so some of my optimism is just based on my track record. I, I'd love to have some of these high-end hunts, some of these hunts that take more points to get. But looking back at my track record, that isn't where I've killed my last two big bucks. Okay. I've only ever killed off the top of my head one really big buck on a really hard to draw tag. Okay. Maybe two, there might've been two that's out of like 25 bucks. So sorry, man, I'm still going to go with the easier to get tags that I can learn the units and, um, and, and, and build on my success from previous years. Uh, that's the direction I'm going to go. And the other thing too, about these units that are not sexy after opening day, the excitement wears off quickly for most people. I was in one of our top mule states in November this year for a nine-day season. And the last five days, I hardly saw anybody in the deer country. Hardly anybody. Now, I didn't get a big buck either, but I saw two two shooters that I would have shot. And and again, this is just on a tag. That's That was on a tag you can get every year. So that's where... That's where the difference is, where when you you go to these hard-to-draw hunts and even these landowner tags and these other hunts that you're talking about, there's a lot of pressure there. The best hunters get that stuff. The best outfitters are there. Maybe not everywhere. You, you know, I'm not saying don't, don't look for those opportunities. I am not saying that. I'm looking for them too. But just reading your question, it's almost like, hey, that's going to be more of a for sure. Mm-mm. And Travis, Travis agrees too. It's just... It's part of the game. I wouldn't discourage you from doing it, but I wouldn't put all my eggs in that basket. Okay. Now, if you're saying, hey, I only get to do one deer hunt a year, am I better to work a side hustle and buy a better tag? 
yeah, probably. But man, I want to enjoy deer hunting more than that. And to me, it's a lot more than the kill. It's the scouting. It's the time in the woods. It's, it's, um, it's just learning and, and keeping after it. Uh, to me, that's where the satisfaction comes in it. And, um, yeah, of course I would love to have better tags. I really would, but I get a lot of satisfaction out of just finding bucks. And even if it's not quite the buck I'm looking for and I pass them, um, just, just coming off the hardest winter that I remember around here since 92, 93 this year. And I thought about it the other day. I went on four deer hunts last year, two different tags, uh, four, four hunts. And I still found mature bucks up into close, you know, one seventies and even even one buck that was well over 180. Um, I still found those bucks in in these areas. And to me, that there's there's some satisfaction in that. I don't have to kill one to be satisfied with the hunt. Yeah, I want to. You eventually got to, all right? But that's not where all the satisfaction comes from. So even on a really hard year, I, I found mature bucks. And that's to me the fun in it all and and it's going to be cyclical i mean if it stays good like it is right now i'll be right back looking for those bucks next year because number one i can get a tag again okay that's that's a big part of it um and they have a winter like this a couple of those bucks are probably going to be dandies so anyways that was uh that's our answers to your questions right there just remember there's no guarantees Okay, moving on to rock slide. Uh, let's see, what do we got going on? Okay, we've talked about the, the photo contest. Sam has talked about them and getting everybody uh, entered in them. Well, the photo contest closed December 10th. And the way our photo contests work, we have one for elk, we have one for mule deer, we have one for sheep, we have one for whitetail, and we have one for youth hunters. The elk, mule deer, and sheep, they're, they're all closed now and the staff is voting on them. And so the staff goes through, you know, there's hundreds of pictures, they pick the top 10 pictures. And then we put them up and the members pick the winner. Uh, I just posted the elk uh, contest today. So the members can start voting on it. And you know, this is the eighth year we've done these contests. And cameras have definitely gotten better in that eight years. But I think members have upped their game on their on their photo skills. These are the best elk photos out of any contest that we've done yet. I'm not an elk hunter, but it made me want to be one when I looked at those photos. Uh, so it's open for voting. I believe this episode that I'm talking today comes out on January 8th. I think the elk, you can vote till the 14th. Uh, mule deer will go after that. Sheep will be after that. So just look for the sub forums, jump in there. If you're not going to vote, that's fine, but you should. It's easy to vote. Um, but definitely look at the photos that are in there. There are just some amazing photos in there. Um, they just get better every year. Like I said, the, the cameras get better. People get better at taking pictures, just some really cool stuff in there. And the, the other cool thing about these, they're not all grip and grins. In the elk contest and the finalists, there's only three classic grip and grins. The rest of them, they're pack out photos. One of them is shot probably from a drone or from a tree of some guys um, working on an elk. Um other ones are uh, just just really cool effect with like smoke. Some guys were were, were cleaning an elk and uh, getting ready to pack it out, and they had a fire going, and just the way the smoke made the picture. Another one, a guy standing on a skyline at one o'clock in the morning, and they had a professional camera for this one. They got all the stars in the background. I mean, there's some really cool photos. So don't just think grip and grin. In fact, 
grip and grins only win about half these contests. A lot of times they're these kind of oddball out of the way pitchers because they're, they're, it's not a biggest animal contest. It's a best photo contest. So I encourage you to jump in there and take a look at those. Uh, let's see. I know I probably keep driving you nuts talking about the Swarovski ATC, but I got a data point I want to share with you. So part of my winter scouting, uh, doing like last week, I found the best buck I found this winter. You can look at him. I'm not going to give him a score, but you know, he's, he's, he's a good buck and he's in a winter kill area. Super excited to see how he, if he shows up next year. And, uh, anyways, I was able to do a side-by-side comparison in video for you to watch between the ATC, the Compact Swaro Spotter, 17 to 40 by 56 versus their ATS, 25 to 50 by 80. Okay. So I keep talking about this ATC, how I just used it almost exclusively. I'll fall. I didn't go to my, my bigger scopes. It's not because it's better than the bigger scopes. The bigger scopes are better. They have a little more, uh, definitely better light gathering and, uh, it's going to be light transmission. You know, it's not really light gathering. Nothing gathers light, uh, light transmission and, uh, a better resolution. But I was able to get a really good comparison video between the two in same conditions, taken a minute apart on this big buck, bedded in the sage. And you can see the difference between the, 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 the small compact spotter and the big spotter. And it's always what I talk about in my reviews. We pay a lot more money and pack more weight for small differences. So I'm going to tell you where that, where to go look at that video. But when you look at it, you'll see the difference. The ATC did not beat the ATS. I'll tell you that right now. Spoiler alert. But you will be able to quantify what you're giving up with the ATC um, if you're coming from a big 80 millimeter spotter. And by the way, that ATS 80 millimeter swirls, it's pretty awesome. Um, and, and so go take a look at that. This is where you find it. We will have it on the Rockslide Instagram page on uh, the, the day that this launches. So I think I've got, I'm going to launch this on the 8th, but whatever day this launches is, uh, it'll be on the Rockslide Instagram page. And if you're an Instagram hater, I get it, but you still got to go look. You don't have to join Instagram to look. And you'll see it's about a 45 second video where I go back and forth between the buck on, on the scopes and uh, no editing other than I just, just trim the clips, welded them together, um, same lighting conditions, all that stuff. You'll be able to see the difference. And I think you'll see why I'm packing that ATC so much because I'm not giving up that much compared to the weight of that ATS and the bulk of the ATS and then the price difference. Okay. So go, ch- go check that out. Rockslide Instagram. It'll probably be, a, I'll probably share it onto my Instagram too. Um, Robbie Denning. So also, I'd mentioned a few episodes back about uh, the Zeiss 10 by 40 SFLs. That's their compact binoculars. Again, these are not like toy compacts that go in your shirt pocket. These are compacts about the size of your hand. They're about half the size of, you know, standard chest binocular. Um, I did a big review on them about a year ago. And then our our, our friend Jay Nichols, uh, the Mindful Hunter, uh, he uh, was talking about reviewing them. I just went ahead and sent them to him. Didn't give him any input, just said, you do, you do what you want with them. You test them the way you want. Let me know what you think. And he just published his review. It's on YouTube. It's about a 30 minute review, very thorough. Um, and 
we pretty much agreed the SFLs are awesome. Okay. So if you are in the market for the Swarovski NLs, I won't talk you out of them, but if it's like, Hey man, this is going to be a real pinch. You know, my, my kids, uh, not going to be able to have a birthday present this year. Take a look at the SFLs. You're not giving up that much. And, 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 and this is where I get the saying from that we pay a lot for small differences. And so the, the NLs definitely are going to beat them, but you're paying a lot more for it, but go look at, go look at the mindful hunters review. It came out about mid December. So, and, um, they're pretty awesome. Okay. So we're going to jump into hunting big mule deer, my book here. And, um, I've got a couple more chapters, uh, sub chapters here in the gear section. And then once we're done with that, we actually get into my favorite part of the book, which is the techniques to kill the best buck of your life. This is the steel hunting, the glassing, the tracking, the ambush hunting, the stuff that I really enjoy about deer hunting. Uh, and, and that's why I say to me, the satisfaction, yeah, I want to get one, but even when I don't get one, when I'm out there still hunting and tracking and ambush hunting and learning, there's, there's a lot of satisfaction in that for me. So once we get these next two subchapters out of the way on footwear and deer camp, um, it'll probably be another couple episodes before I'm able to do the book. Then each of those episodes, we're going to get into the nine different techniques to kill the best buck of your life. Okay. So today we're going to jump into the footwear section. Like every time I read from this book, I like to remind people, this book was written nine years ago. So, you know, it's getting, it's kind of dated. Um, there's, there's, there's different things out there now that I would use. I'll call, I might call on that, comment on that after I read this, but, uh, but this, this is where I was at that point in time. And I still think there's some timeless, timeless stuff in here. Okay, here we go. Footwear. Like clothing, footwear has the potential to make or break a hunt. You need to really pay attention to your feet and spend ample preseason time preparing for the rigors of the hunt. You can't hunt on lame feet, and thousands of hunts are cut short each year because of footwear problems. I don't have very finicky feet, and other than a very wide forefoot, 4E, I can find a variety of footwear options that perform well for me. Some hunters aren't so lucky and need professional help in selecting proper footwear. I recommend only buying footwear that you can return with a, within a reasonable time. That means you have to purchase well before your hunt and figure out wearing the footwear indoors required by most manufacturers if you want to return them, whether it will perform on the hunt. I recommend buying from a professional boot fitter such as Lathrop and Sons who have decades of experience in podiatry, the science of your feet, or from high-end boot stores such as Schnee's of Bozeman, Montana, and uh, Hoffman boots, all the other ones that are out there. You can't skimp on footwear, and these pros can seriously improve your footwear experience. You'll pay more money when you do it right, but if you pay twice as much for a top-end boot that fits perfectly and lasts twice as long, which is very likely, as the shoddy options at Walmart, the math shows you'll break even but have a much better experience. That's worth it to me. I typically wear a light hiker in the August-September months. The weather's better then, and I'm typically hunting with archery or muzzleloading gear and need to stock in close, so quiet, stealthy footwear is a must. I'm currently using the Bridger made by Schnees. It's a light boot, great for stalking in the early season. Once I get into October and the rifle hunts, I'll wear a heavier boot with light insulation. The breathable materials available today are great at keeping moisture out, but also keep some moisture in regardless of manufacturer claims, and on extended hunts with no heat in your tent, they can become cold and damp because they never fully dry. 
I can manage this until the snow flies, but then I'm switching to a pack boot with removable liners. I'm currently using the Hunter 2 from Schnee's Boots. A removable liner means you can easily dry your boots and lead to warmer feet the next day. I also use the chemical boot heater shaped like a sole on hunts where the temperature never gets above freezing. For a few bucks and a few ounces per day, these can really make a difference. Okay, that just a short chapter on, on footwear. Um, as I went through that, I still have those Schnee's boots. They're on my feet during this episode and not on purpose. It's, they're getting, they're getting pretty worn. They're like 15 years old now. So I wear them to work in the winter. Um, but I've had them rebuilt, oh, I think four times. And by rebuilt, they just rebuild the bottoms because a pack boot has a rubber bottom and that wears out, but your leathers last forever. And they're probably good for one more rebuild. Uh, but uh, since then, I've also started working with Hoffman boots and, um, I'm probably going to try a pair of theirs or Schnee's keeps threatening that they're going to come out with another upgraded pack boot. I may try that, but getting to the, getting to the end of the life on these. So I'll be switching it up. I've also used white boots too. I didn't mention that in there. I used those prior to my Schnee's. They were a really good boot, but pack boots, if you're not familiar with them, get familiar with them. They're a totally different technology. And because you can take them apart, as I said in the reading, it, they're a game changer. Okay. Now they're really for the only very, very cold weather hunt. And I've had some guys say what they're not, uh, there's not enough rigidity in them. Um, there has been for me, I'm not carrying big, heavy packs. Maybe that's why I've got away with it, but, uh, but I've been very happy with them. Uh, Lathrop and Sons, they're still a rock slide advertiser. And, um, I've, did their tech light hunters and went through their custom fit process was very happy with that. And I wore those boots for like four years and, uh, finally gave them to Robert Hainemann's son. He was in, in need of a pair of boots. And I think I had gone on to another hiker, uh, Kenetrek. I went to the Kenetrek hard scrabbles. Um, I've had two pair of those now. I've been very happy with those. So anyways, footwear, uh, definitely get, uh, uh professional help if you uh, want the best experience from footwear. You pursue them, you cherish them, and now it's time to protect them. This is the Mule Deer Foundation. Our mission is the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats, the heart and soul of the West. Join the herd today and help us preserve the legacy of these majestic creatures for generations to come. Your membership supports essential conservation projects, research initiatives, and educational programs that secure a future for mule deer and black-tailed deer. Our deer, our heritage, our responsibility. Don't just witness their journey, be a part of it. Join the herd. Together, we can make a difference. Visit muledeer.org today. We're going to move into deer camp. All right. I love deer camp. Deer camp. If you're staying out even one night in the woods, deer camp is as important as your clothing. I learned from my sweet daddy many years ago that camp has to be comfortable and even a little fun if a mule deer hunter is going to succeed. A good camp not only allows you to thrive in inclement weather, it also allows you to stay for the duration while you search for the buck of your dreams. It's in camp that you recharge yourself in preparation for another day of hunting. If your camp isn't comfortable enough to recoup physically and mentally, by about day two, you'll be thinking about mama and your warm bed at home. Before you know it, you'll have dreamed up all kinds of excuses to leave. The bucks are gone 
on, work's calling, too much hunting pressure, I saw a snake, whatever, and it's only a matter of time before you're at the truck. Generally speaking, I have two types of camps, a road camp and a backcountry camp. Road camp. I've killed several of my best bucks from road camps. These are great in areas where you can reach good buck country in less than an hour and in areas where you need a lot of need to cover a lot of country to see enough bucks to find a dandy. Road camps can also serve as a base camp to a spike camp in the backcountry. I've hunted up to two weeks straight in the backcountry and sometimes need to return to the truck to resupply. If that might be the case, I make sure I have at least a tent set up or a cot in the horse trader so if I get caught in the dark or just need a break, I'm not forced to sleep in the pickup, which really it doesn't give you much rest at all. My road camps will have many of the niceties of homes, like a good comfortable cot with a thick mattress and a full-size pillow. I'll bring propane stoves, lanterns, and space heaters, and of course, good groceries. I also set up a wall tent if I'm hunting with other guys, or if I'm alone, I'll set up a six-man or an eight-man tent. Big buck hunting is more mental than physical, and these comforts allow me to stay sharp enough to hunt in the often, to the often bitter end. Just last fall, I killed 180 inch gross mule deer on the very last morning of a 10-day hunt. My success, in part, came from the fact that I could recharge nearly every day in my road camp, and with access to a vehicle, I could cover a bunch of buck country to find what I was looking for. Just because I'm hunting miles away from a road for days on end doesn't mean I need to put up with a shoddy camp. I've learned this the hard way, and I've seen many other hunters who've left the mountain just as the hunting was getting good because of a subpar camp. I'll give you a breakdown of the major pieces of gear I take into the backcountry. Tent and wood-burning stove. I always take a tent a little bigger than I need. In the early fall, before the big snow hits, a wood-burning stove is not needed. So I'll take a backpacking tent, a man size bigger than what I need. So a th two-man tent if I'm solo, or a three-man if I'm with a partner. I need to be able to put everything in the tent if the weather turns, so having that extra space is necessary. It makes no sense to pack one-man tent and then bring a tarp for cooking or for covering gear. Last year, my friends at One Shot Gear in Denver loaned me a Hilleberg Knowledge 3GT. This three-man tent was awesome in both construction and livable space. I could cook inside the vestibule and still have plenty of room to get in and out of the tent. I also old, own an old man, excuse me, an old two-man Eureka that has served me well for 10 years, proving that you don't always have to break the bank to get decent gear. Once I get into October and sub-freezing temperatures and deep snow are possible, I bring a teepee-style tent in the 6-8 to eight man range. That sounds huge, but if you're hunting 5-10 to 10 days and the weather goes sour, you'll use all that space, especially with a partner. Again, camp should be the place I can recover mentally, and if I'm unable to stand up in the tent or I'm constantly tripping over my gear, I start to get a little grumpy. I used... Army surplus eight-man insulated canvas tents for nearly 20 years. They can still be had for around $200 and are warmer than any modern tent design you'll find out there. They are also great at preventing condensation. They are heavy, around 30 pounds, and are suitable only for road or horse camps. Last fall, I finally switched to a modern lightweight teepee, this one an eight-man from Seek outside of Ridgeway, Colorado. I stayed more than 20 nights in mine from 15 degrees and snowing to 80 and sunny. It performed well, although next year I'll add a liner to prevent condensation, always a problem with the waterproof fabrics, and improve the insulation factor. Kafaru International also makes some excellent ultralight teepee tents. This brings up the necessity of a wood-burning stove. There is something comforting about fire beyond the heat it provides that I believe was placed in the heart of man by God himself. Ancient hunters on every continent scratch pictographs of fire alongside their hunting scenes. Many hunters think of fire as a survival tool, but it's way more than that. 
If the weather's cold and you stick me in a tent with no heat source, I'm good for about two days. Throw in a good wood burner and big bucks watch out. I'm there for the duration. A good wood burner can cook your food and dry your clothes and boots and warm your heart and attitude. I used to pack heavy iron stoves pre-season into the backcountry for later use, but that is almost unnecessary these days with the invention of the lightweight titanium stoves by Kafaru and Seek Outside. Even backpack hunters can now carry a functioning wood burner for not much more weight than their cooking stove, which of course they don't really need with a wood burner in camp. Let there be light. I'd rank a good light source as a close second to a wood burner for providing comfort in the backcountry. I've lived with nothing but a small mag light for days on end, but if I bring a good lantern, it just improves the camp mood. Like fire brings light and unexplainable comfort to the hunter. I still prefer white gas lanterns as they perform well in sub-zero temperatures, and I'm not stuck with the dilemma of what to do with an empty fuel canister at the hunt's end. I pack fuel in burnable water bottles. If I take a cooking stove, it's white gas too, so no need for two fuel types. If it's summer scouting or September, I'll just use a good lamp as the nights are pretty short. Sleep systems. If I'm spending more than a few nights in the backcountry and I'm horse packing, I bring a cot. Cots provide more comfort than sleeping on the ground and create a storage area underneath that can help keep your tent space more usable. If I can't bring a cot, I spend extra time leveling the ground where I'll sleep and bring a great sleeping pad. As a horse packer, I often double blanket my horses. The top blanket doesn't touch the horse, so it stays clean and odor-free. In camp, I use the top blankets as extra sleeping pads. Again, a good camp allows you to rest, and if you can't get comfortable while sleeping, your motivation to hunt will wane. I use down sleeping bags for their great warmth to weight ratio. Down can lose its insulation factor if it gets wet, so you have to be very careful. I cover mine with a light plastic tarp and have never had much of a problem. Your tent is the most important factor in keeping your bag dry, so if you're using a shoddy tent, down is probably not a good choice. I find that no matter the tent, if I just take the time to dig a drainage system around my tent, I can prevent water from entering even in the worst downpours. Some guys can sleep without a pillow, but not me. In my horse camps, I bring a good pillow, but in my backpacking camp, sometimes my puffy jacket has to do. No matter your choices, make sure your sleep system allows you to get the needed rest hunting requires. Miscellaneous. From my horse camps, I line one of my panniers with a lightweight 3 16 piece of paneling that can serve as a table in camp. I bring four wood screws and then attach legs I make from tree branches. I also bring a lightweight folding chair like the Helinox. A chair is key to relaxing and recuperating in camp if you're there for more than a few days. If I can choose only a chair or a cot, I'll take just a cot. It will work in place of a chair. If I'm in a backpacking camp, I'll make a sheep herder's chair, which is two logs about 12 inches in diameter placed close parallel and secured together with wood stakes or rocks so they don't roll. You can sit in the crotch between the two logs. I bring a 12-inch square of aluminum and foil. It has numerous uses for cooking. A Leatherman with pliers, knives, and a small saw, great for cutting trekking poles, is always on my belt and I use it daily. Last year, I added a Havilon Peranta to my camp gear and found it superior to traditional knives for breaking down and caping a big buck, except around the eyes and cheeks where it's easy to cut through the thin skin. In my horse camps, I bring a collapsible water bucket so I can have plenty of water within reach. If I'm running wood burner, I either bring a small pulley to secure in the apex of the tent so I can hoist my upside down boots every night, air temperature can reach 100 degrees up there, or I pound thin long stakes in the ground so I can put my boots above the stove where the heat collects. I bring a handful of clothespins, handy for 
drying clothes and I always bring a spot locator and usually keep it in my shirt pocket so I don't get separate so I don't get separated from it. If I have to choose between a phone and spot, it's the spot every time. In that same shirt pocket are two fire starters, trioxane tablets, and a cotton paraffin tablet, and two lighters that I replace every year, and I don't use them for anything else in camp. While every hunter's gear list will vary, everything that I mention here is on mine every year. I've included my main gear list in the back of the book. Okay, everybody. So, as I read those, let's bring back good memories, and I have updated some of that stuff. Um... Let's see here. On my road camp uh, for this year, I went to that. You may have seen my review on the Sapphire Flex 15. It's on the Rock Slide YouTube channel. That was a 15-man teepee tent. Huge. Um, I've still got that old army one, and it's fine for just one or two one or two guys, but if the weather's really bad, really just one guy. But the the 15 man, 15 man sounds huge. It's, it's not that big. Uh, but the great thing about TP tents, you can set them up by yourself. And I talked about that on a previous episode. Um, I was arriving at our, our hunt location before Travis, so I had to set the tent up myself and it's way easier than a wall tent. I like the usable space of a wall tent better. I really do, especially if they have five foot walls because you can get right against the walls. But if you're alone, uh, think about the TP tents. Uh, uh, Mansfield Outdoors has the, uh, the the Sapphire Flex 15. They also make a Sapphire 9. I think they make a Sapphire 6 too. But uh, but I really like do like TP tents. Um, let's see. I'm still using that Seek Outside Eight Man TP. I've had it what nine years now. 100 plus days, easily 100 plus days, easily. It's got a couple holes in it that I burned from not putting the fire cap on the chimney and the zippers still work fine. I haven't torn out any stake holes. It's been a solid tent. Um, they do get a lot of condensation. That's not just particular to the seek outside. That's any of the waterproof tents uh, that don't breathe. And, and, and I said in the reading that I was going to put a liner in it. I did. But I ended up taking it out because I've just kind of learned that the liner took up more room in the bag. It was hard to get in the bag. And plus, it takes up a little bit of your usable space inside the tent, too. And I just kind of learned to stay away from the walls. And, you know, for the most part, when there's condensation, that's... Uh, that that's significant. It's in the cold weather. Well, I've got a wood burning stove then. I just need to stay away from the walls till I heat the tent up. So still using that. Um, let's see what else did I have in here? Uh, the, the down bags, I was using military down bags and I wrote this book. I've gone to the high end stuff from Kuyu, uh, since then and been very happy with it. If you look at my, uh, and, and also Stone Glacier, their Chilkoot. Um, if you look, um, on the rock slide, YouTube channel. I did some head-to-heads on that and uh, been very happy with those. The The down is more waterproof now, but the shells are more waterproof. There's just less of a chance of getting water in your bag. Where those old canvas down bags, I was always paranoid uh, of soaking them. But even in you know 20 years of using them, I, I got them wet a couple times, but never to the point that they weren't usable. Um, but e- even more confidence in these new ones. But uh, that's pretty much all I'll use in the late season is down. I use the cheaper bigger bags at road camps and everything. Cause I don't want to put the, all the wear and tear on my nice bags. Uh, let's see, still using that, uh, that Helinox chair. I bought that from mystery ranch and, uh, it's still been a really solid chair. It's kind of starting to come apart. I notice. Um, but you know, it's got, oh my goodness, eight years on it. I think, um, let's see. 
lanterns. I have gone to propane powered lanterns for my road count just because I can deal with the extra canisters. But for the backcountry, I still just use the white gas. Then I don't have to worry about those canisters. I can pack white gas in water bottles, burn the water bottles. Um, and then, you know, if you're coming out heavy, which occasionally I am, I don't have to worry about uh, hauling all those uh, steel bottles out that you run with propane lanterns. So anyways, guys, I hope that helps you. I realize some of that stuff's dated, but, uh, but camp, man, I learned from my dad, you got to have a good camp. There has been so many hunts I've been on when the weather's turned sour that the mountains just clear out because uh, guys don't have good camps. And if you have a good camp, uh, that's that that allows you to stay and recharge. You can't just be out there surviving. You know, maybe some people can, but I can't, man. I got to I gotta thrive a little bit in camp. And I learned that from my dad. You know, have, have some good food, have a big fire. You'll hunt longer and better. Um, that's my story and, and I'm sticking to it. So Okay. Thanks for listening in on that. As promised on a future episode, we'll get into the techniques, the nine techniques on how to take the best buck of your life. Thanks everybody. 